destination place. Um, <clears throat> so they say that tomorrow, Memorial Day, is, has been called the most expensive holiday of the year. And that every burger and hot dog and vacation plan that we make is a debt that's paid for by fallen men and women of the military service who gave their lives. And for them and to their loved ones, we say thank you. This particular somber week also includes church scandals, both local and in in the nation. Two more mass shootings uh, this week. I know that if you're like mine, hearts are heavy this week. I don't know if you saw the pictures of the 19 children and two teachers that were shot in, in a community in Texas, much like ours, uh, this week. It raises many questions in our lives, and I just want to declare at the outset that only the cross of Jesus Christ takes these heartbreaking and wicked things and makes them bearable. Makes them bearable and assures us, and we can praise God, that this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. That God ensures many things. He ensures in his kingdom that justice will be served. In Romans, he says, God ensures justice. He will render to each one according to his works. We have assurance in that. We have assurance that suffering of all kinds can have meaning, he says in Romans 8, that his fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him and that he works things out to the good of those who love the Lord. The cross of Jesus Christ is what makes all of this and much more possible. It's the, the, the plan, the redemptive plan of the whole world centers around the cross, which is suffering. And so we've been talking about and singing about the cross this morning already. Praise God. Uh, so I just wanted to open with that. And in the, in the assurance, the book of Hebrews says that That we do not have a high priest of God, Jesus Christ, who is unfamiliar with our sufferings. No, rather, he has endured all the sufferings that we will ever face. He's been there, and he's he's experienced those, and he relates to us, and he's with us always until the end of this age. Then in Revelation 21, he adds that at the end, in his kingdom, he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be grieving, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former, former things have passed away. All these great assurances, the meaning and the presence of God in our suffering, the end of it all, the glory of God, are only found in Jesus' kingdom, and so we don't want to, anyone to miss out on that. Uh, we've been going through the series in Matthew called uh, Follow the King, And we're right in this little mini-series where Jesus is teaching all kinds of things about life in his kingdom family. And he's he's been bringing it, hasn't he? Jesus is good. He does that. He continues that today. If you open, if you haven't yet, to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13. This is our topic today, is not missing out on the kingdom of God. How do you get in the kingdom of God? Who is closest to the kingdom of God? I would love if you had your sermon notes today because uh, I'll tell you why in just a second. Just raise your hand if you don't have them, and the ushers will put them into your hands. We're going to get into some theology today, and if you like to take notes on such things, it might be helpful to have those sermon notes. And Jesus is going to paint two different portraits here in his word, and he's going to ask the question, who is closer to entering the kingdom of God? Is it the little baby with no status? 
Or is it the wealthy, powerful, influential, seemingly really got his stuff together, rich young ruler? And those are the two portraits that are in contrast today. Who will enter the kingdom of God? Who will Jesus save? Who is forgiven all their sins? Who inherits eternal life? Who enters Jesus' kingdom? Point one is that Jesus receives the humble. Let's read these first three verses and dig deep into their underlying theology here. Jesus' few words in these three verses bring up a lot of theological truth. So here we are in the midst of all he's doing and saying. We see this in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Well, the disciples rebuked the people. Get away. But Jesus said, hey, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and they went away. And, and he went away. So here's what happens. He's teaching. Crowds all around. Lots of things going on these last several weeks. And parents, you know, I don't blame them at all. They're like, we have some babies. We're going to take the advantage of this and have... Jesus laid his hands and bless our children. We just had a child dedication a few weeks ago. And wouldn't it have been, that was special and it's amazing, gift of God. Wouldn't that be neat if Jesus was up here on stage to bless the children? So nobody blames these parents for uh, taking that opportunity. But the disciples, they tell the babies, to, the parents to get the babies out of here. They either thought Jesus was too busy or that the babies were not significant. Enough to bother him right now. But what did Jesus do? In all seriousness, he put his foot down on that. And he said, no. Jesus values babies enormously. Let's see what he says here in verse 14. Look again. Jesus said, with all certain seriousness, he said, no, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. That raises the question, how might we hinder children? And I want to address this because we just live in a world where hindering children is, oh, man, it's a, it's a value. It's, it's a riot. It's, it's what's celebrated now. And I just, want to, I just want to say the value of children made in the image of God, image bearers of God, all life have, has value. All life has value. How do we hinder children? I'm just going to start with the big one going chronologically that starts with abortion. Killed even before they are out of the womb, that's the ultimate hindering of a child. Of course, where Roe v. Wade is, is huge in the news and in our country and our land these days, 62 million children have been killed since Roe v. Wade through abortion, and millions more, and this is something that, we, that warrants more talk about through abortifacients that end a life that started. Their blood is on our hands, biblically, contributing to God's certain judgment on America, and we can speak against that and not be silent. How might else we hinder children, those who do uh, survive that evil? How about tempting them to sin? There's a lot of temptation to sin, and, it's, and children just aren't protected anymore. Tempting children to sin and to turn their backs on Jesus. We have individuals in their, in their lives that do that. We have businesses that profit from tempting children to sin and turn their back on Jesus. We have the media that's all out for that very thing, and the government now that's sanctioning it and legalizing it and celebrating. 
things that will tempt and hinder a child for coming to Christ. Even things, I can't even believe we're talking about this in, in legal terms, making a right for kids to get puberty blockers and gender reassignment surgeries without their parents even knowing that's child abuse, and it's a quickly ep growing epidemic in our country right now. And you know, there are countries that are beyond where we are right now, and they're seeing the damage that that's caused and the injustice of it all, and they're changing even as we're charging into that. Hear Jesus' words, do not hinder the children. But you know what? Ourselves, we're not innocent of this either. How might we hinder children from coming to Christ, from seeing Jesus as their Lord and, and first treasure of their lives. How, well, we might be the ones that are tempting them. And I just want to ask, have you tempted any children to sin and not follow Jesus in any way? Hear Jesus' words. How about not doing our part that God has commanded to bring them up in the discipline and nurture of the Lord? Ephesians 6.4, that is a primary command for us to do, to bring them up in reverent fear of God that's healthy of, of the holy God, to know him and, and know about him and to worship him, or to keep our children from bad company that corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15. Are we doing our part to do that? All while giving them opportunity to serve Christ and be his disciple makers. And we do all of those things, and Psalm 1 paints this beautiful picture of what happens when we do this. Psalm 1 says, blessed are the ones, are, the, are our children under our care blessed in not walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, or sitting in the seat of scoffers. Blessed are they if they're not, if they're kept from that. But rather, they are like trees planted by streams of water, yielding fruit with leaves that don't wither, prospering in life through godliness. This is certainly what we want with the children in our families, the children that we know, and the children in our church family. That's exactly what we want. You know, all this recalls when Jesus gave his input on this, on these kind of things, just two weeks ago, if you were here, in Matthew 18, 6. And I want you to read this verse again, because this is important in our land right now. Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Hear Jesus' value of the young ones around us, among us. Now, to acknowledge on the opposite end of that, all of the not hindering children from coming to Christ that is happening here, I want to take the opportunity to thank all the people who in this church family are loving our children and raising them and discipline, dis discipling them and disciplining them if they have to be dis disciplined, that's fine. Um, on behalf of Heather Faust, our children's ministry director, I want to publicly thank all the children's ministry staff, volunteers, all the nursery workers, uh, the army of people. Our ministry year just ended last Wednesday night, and every week I, I walk and I see everybody in, in action pouring themselves out for the sake of our children and the children of the community for the glory of God, working so hard, and uh, I just want to thank them. Uh, we average over 50 small kids, a whole lot more youth here every Wednesday night, and a whole lot of volunteers to make that happen. Can we just give a big hand of appreciation to all those people? Thanks so much.
Now I have to mention we still need more. <laughs> still need more volunteers. We have soccer camp coming up. If you were involved in that, that's an all hands on deck. Uh, incredible week coming in later July. And then uh, Heather, our children's ministry director, does have some gaps in, in her volunteer staff for next fall. So would you just help Heather out by not making her wait until the fall? If you're interested, tell her now. That would be a huge relief and, uh, and everything can get prepared for the next fall. Children mean the world to Jesus. He has made that clear and they need to his followers as well. Never hinder them. Now, if you've looked around Community Grace, you've noticed there are lots of children. We try to get them not to run in the hallways. There's a lot of children. You see them a lot. It is great. It is great. And our family has done as much as we can to contribute to the number. <laughs> we are finished. <laughs> Praise God. Children are a blessing. Uh, on the other side, there are also loss of children. There are miscarriages. There are uh, parents and grandparents of aborted babies here as well. And I want to talk very uh, real as well. These things are hard. And know that the church walks through all these things with you, through, the, through that pain with you. And that God forgives and that God heals. And any true Christ-following church is going to walk right along with you in all of those things. And part of that as I reflect on this verse and what Jesus says next about children being the one that enter the kingdom, both literally and figuratively, that we're going to talk about this morning, I want to answer the question that naturally comes up, and that is what happens to babies when they die? And this is a good opportunity to say this. What is the eternal future of the little ones who die? Since Jesus just spoke to their place in the kingdom, that raises that question and gives us a great opportunity to answer this. So here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that, first of all, we who are listening to this and understanding these words, we are clearly responsible for whether we accept Jesus or reject Jesus. We are clearly responsible for that. However, babies, young children, severe mentally handicapped persons are unable to, at this point, either accept or reject Jesus as their Savior from sin and God's punishment for it. Therefore, if they die, they will not perish in hell because Jesus' redemptive work on the cross has cared for everything that they need. I want to take a little bit of time to study the doctrines of sin and salvation in regard to this this morning. If you see it on your notes, you see there are three areas of sin in Scripture. Three areas of sin and their effects. We're going to go quickly through this because this is not a four-credit class. This is a sermon. All right, number one is sin guilt. Sin guilt, which everyone has because of Adam. Everyone has sin guilt because of Adam, which is passed on to every person at conception through their father. Because of that, here's the effect of that. Romans 5 tells us that is where physical death comes from. Because of that, we all die. Physically. Physical death was not a part of God's original design. It entered with sin. Romans 5 tells us that. Death was an intruder in our world only because of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That chapter goes on to explain that the penalty of sin guilt is physical death. That's verse 14. But the Bible teaches 
that Jesus came and he endured physical death in order to care for that need. And in his resurrection, conquered physical death. And this is taught in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. Look at these few verses. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, that's Adam, also by man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, we need to be in Christ, shall all be made alive. Jesus' resurrection conquered death, giving us the hope and promise of our own resurrection if we're in Christ. That's why Christians have so much hope. And for this we say, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's sin guilt. The second area of sin is sin nature. Everyone also has a nature, a sin nature that's transmitted to us from our fathers at conception, passed on human to human. This is our human flesh that wants to do bad things. Study John 3, Ephesians 2, Psalm 51, that define all this. Now, just as Jesus took care of our sin guilt on the cross in his death, in the same way he overcame our sin nature by taking on the cross the judgment for all sin. Romans 6 and Romans 8 teach this. Let's look at Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he look what he did he condemned sin in the flesh he doesn't condemn us once we're in Christ he condemns our sin he takes on the full judgment of all humanity's sin nature he takes that and removes it from us in Christ. And again we say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. But there's a third area of sin which Scripture addresses, and that's acts of personal sin. We have choices all day. Will we sin or will we not sin? All people who are old enough to understand that God requires us not to sin, we, could, we do commit acts of personal sin, and again, tons and tons of scriptures about this. People are guilty of their personal sin, that's Romans 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we're condemned because of them, John 3. Let's look at the, the most well-known, wonderful verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. also the two verses that follow it. The promise, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, because we can't save ourselves, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, the words of life. Look at the next two verses. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There it is. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And why is that? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Let these words sink in. There's one sin that determines our lostness or eternal life, our eternity, our eternity in hell, the righteous judgment of rejecting Almighty God or eternal life. 
and that is not trusting the redeeming, saving grace of Jesus Christ. And when we deny Jesus or reject Jesus, we stand condemned in that sin for eternity in hell. But when we trust Jesus, we receive, he doesn't just fix us, we receive God's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorites, one of the most important verses. For he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. You have to understand the gravity of what's going on here in Christ. What we're recipients of, it's not just a cultural thing. This is immense. It's infinite. It's eternal. And we're forgiven of that one sin that forever damns a person. Okay, now, compare babies, young children, severe mentally handicapped, who do not have the ability to accept or reject Jesus, and compare us, who we who have trusted Jesus and received that. With such people, sin has not yet brought a conscious resistance to God's law and therefore a conscious rejection of Christ. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, and the Greek word for these little children is paideon, that's children who have recently been born. So we're talking about clearly children who do not have the awareness of sin. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, it means that until they reach that condition of awareness and conscious rejection of Jesus, they are covered in God's care and all that Christ accomplished on the cross. So at death, they are covered totally by Jesus' sacrifice and they enter God's presence in heaven on the basis of Jesus' gracious, gracious sacrifice on the cross in the same way as we sinners enter God's gracious presence based on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's all based on Jesus' glorious grace and his sacrifice for us. And that's important theology, of course, for us to make sure that we are not standing condemned already by our rebellion against Jesus or our, our ignoring or our apathy towards him, our rejection of him. But it's also important if you know somebody who's going through the tragic loss of a child right now, or maybe it's you, I encourage you with these words and with this assurance. And if you want to read more about that, I encourage you to pick up these two resources. One is the more detailed Safe in the Arms of God by John MacArthur. And the other is a more devotional book, I'll Hold You in Heaven by Jack Hayford. And these were both an encouragement to me and Sarah during our own miscarriage a few years ago. And you know, when that happens in your life, people come out of the woodwork and, and give you assurance of an encouragement of every kind and you realize it's a pretty common thing and and I know the numbers of, of, of abortion are are massive as well God is a God of all grace and total healing and I want to assure you of that the Bible is, does not leave that a mystery so turn to him and be encouraged experience his healing and freedom with us on this journey well, I hope these teachings have been encouraging but also challenging because we are responsible. We are accountable for our actions before a holy God.
So according to Jesus, children are the best illustration of how people are saved by God's grace, purely by God's grace, through his sacrifice on the cross, through our humble receiving of, of that, we become alive. Just like a child trusts their parents, it takes humility. A child is totally trusting of their parents. The difference with God is, unlike a human parent, he will never abandon, he will never abuse, he'll never even make a mistake. He's with us, and we can trust him, and we must trust him. And now Jesus is going to contrast the second portrait today with the children. And I would never want to personally just teach on, on this first part without the second part. I believe these go hand in hand because there's such a, an important contrast. To the shock of his audience, those who enter the kingdom of heaven... He says, are those who in humility are like these babies rather than those with great status. That's point number two. Jesus rejects the proud. So at this time, while Jesus is saying this, he's approached by this rich young ruler. The language demonstrates that he was probably in his 20s. He was extremely wealthy and influential. He had a place on the Sanhedrin, the governing authorities. He was moral, meaning he followed the rules. Everybody looked up to this guy probably. But deep down inside, he, like probably some people in this room today, knew that he lacked the greatest treasure, assurance of eternal life, assurance of God in his life. And so he approaches Jesus to find out how he could get it. Let's begin in verse 16. And behold, a man, that's a, a young man, that's the word there, came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have e eternal life? What good deed? And Jesus said to him, you got to remember, Jesus is the master teacher here. He doesn't often just give the, the answer right away, does he? No, he's telling parables. He's asking, answering questions with questions. Look, watch closely the journey that he's going to take this young man in a faith crisis on here. He says, first, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. It's going to make this guy think. So the young man said to him, which ones? And now Jesus, he asked Jesus the most important question you could possibly ask, and, and credit to the young man. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? See, we're still stuck. We're automatically stuck in this I have to earn it mentality. All religions teach the same. You have to do these things to earn our place in God's favor. Accept Christianity. Well, Jesus first replies here, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Of course, Jesus was God He's asking us to reflect here. What does it mean if only God is good and Jesus is good? And what are we truly asking for when we ask about eternal life? Do we really understand? So Jesus presses on. Verses 18 and 19, he said to him, the young man answered, which laws? And Jesus said, and I'm just going to tip this off right here, what he does here is he lists the, the latter six of the Ten Commandments. The latter six of the Ten Commandments address our human interactions with other humans. 
Jesus skips the first four of the Ten Commandments, which address our relationship with God. He'll come back to that. So let's look at what he says. The guy says, which laws? And Jesus said, well, how about these? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. It's a lie. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The ruler asks, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus answers in terms of doing by giving him these laws. Well, the young man is familiar with those six commands. And he says, yeah, sure, I've kept all of those since I was a boy. And here we get to the number one response. If you ever ask people out on the street or people that you know at work or in your family, why would God let you into heaven? On what basis would you say, I I can enter heaven? And what do most people say, because I am a good person? And all the Bible makes it so clear, there is no good person except for Jesus, and we crucified him. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now it's time to Jesus, for Jesus to reveal the young's, young man's true heart, which is all of our hearts, true heart of pride. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? He just claimed to be perfect following the law. And so Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And here's where interpreting the Bible is so important. You can't just take one verse out of there and say, look, Jesus says we should all go and give all of our stuff to the poor all the time. Obviously, we don't believe that, but why? Because what Jesus is doing here, he was showing this ruler that he did not understand God and he did not understand the commandments of God that he professed to have kept perfectly. You see, first of all, Jesus was saying there's no way that you kept all those 100% perfectly. And he's testing them. Well, if you have, sell everything you own, give it to the poor. But even if he had, which is impossible, but even if he had obeyed those six commands perfectly, now Jesus brings up the next, the first four of the Ten Commandments. The first one, the very first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. That is extremely important. John Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory. We put everything and anything and anybody above God in our priorities throughout the day and throughout our lives. So the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Jesus knew, he he knew that this young man had put other things above God and broken that first commandment. And this is what Jesus was showing him. Your money is more important to you than God. It's above God in your life. That's what he was showing him. Your money, your status, your agenda, you're living your own life independently from God. You being your own God is essentially what that is. And we all have the same thing going on in our hearts of pride. And so to reveal that true spiritual condition, Jesus told him, here was the test. Here was to reveal that in the young man's life. Sell everything you had and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. And he replied, no, I'd never be able to do that. I'd never be able to give up those things. 
Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this was sorrowful, but not the type of sorrow that, is, that leads to repentance for sin, but sad that he couldn't do it himself. Sad that he couldn't cling on to all of his stuff, couldn't cling on to his self-righteous legalism and his own agenda for his life. And it's too bad that he didn't grasp that repenting of just worshiping those things and trusting those things and trusting Jesus and worshiping him instead, it would have brought him God plus all that God lavishes on us when we come to him. And he's been regretting that and missing out on that ever since. Jesus still has powerful closing words to his followers. As the man walks away, Jesus, verse 23, turns to his disciples. He says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, now he's going to illustrate that statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, you got it. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus wanted to, to put an exclamation point on this for all who are listening, for all who are following, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter his kingdom. Here's a picture of a camel and some needles. And I'm even being generous. These are ancient needles to mend fishing nets. Okay, those are big needles. But could that camel fit through the eye of that needle? No, the answer is pretty easy. It's not a trick question. No. It's easier for that to happen, though, than a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of Jesus. And I want to give a caution here to the audience that I'm speaking to, because in America, the wealthiest nation by far in the history of humans, where the poverty level, the officially proclaimed poverty level of income is wealthier than 95% of the rest of the world. We are the wealthy people. Why is it so hard then to enter the kingdom? And the answer is it's because it's our wealth that we try to use to buy us out of the problems that we're in. Or it's our power or our ability or our independent spirit. It's our pride. And we have so many resources. We don't need God. We reject God. We don't humble ourselves before God and come to him and live and get lavished on all the great things, himself and all the great things he has to give us. So we keep Jesus out. Oh, but only God can bring life to a soul that is dead in sin. And now in contrast to the rich young ruler, here are the disciples who had abandoned everything to follow Jesus. They were truly repentant of their sins. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah of God. They gave him their trust and their faith and their lives, and therefore they had inherited eternal life from Jesus. And they held nothing in their lives more important than Jesus. I'm sure it was a daily struggle, just like we have. But they had done this. 
And are we glad for Peter, some, or a friend that we have that, that says it like it is, that says what it's on everybody's mind? He asked the question that's on our minds. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Just asking. We're thankful that Peter asked that. Let me ask you, is there a cost to following Jesus? Oh, yeah, you better believe there's a cost. There are severe costs. It costs you control of your own life. Oh, what a good thing to give up, though, to the God who's infinitely wise and perfect and who can steer that control of your life. Oh, man, that's so much better to give that cost up. It costs us admitting that we're a sinner. We have sinned and hurt people and hurt ourselves and sinned against the Holy God. It costs us admitting that, but it's through admitting that humbly that we're forgiven of it, set free from it. Oh, there's a cost, but is it worth it? That's what investors call return on investment. We've got an infinite return on investment here, the costs of following Jesus. What other costs are there? Yes, the cost to live a holy life instead of just pursuing every kind of gratification and sin. There's a cost there, but a great return on investment. And proclaiming Jesus can cost us the loss of relationships with friends, neighbors, family, loved ones. We won't be the first. It might cost us our jobs. It might cost a promotion. It might cost a scholarship. It might cost our popularity. Living like Jesus, proclaiming him. But for Jesus, for eternal life, it is all worth it. It is all worth it. When we make any sacrifice that glorifies God, it purifies us and strengthens us and glorifies God. Make those sacrifices for Jesus. Amen? If you've ever made one, you know it's true. So Jesus responds to Peter. Here's how he answers. Verses 28 through 30, he answers with a wonderful promise for all who believe and follow Jesus. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel, will be reigning and ruling with Christ. And Revelation teaches much more about that. 29, he says, And everyone who has left houses, this costs, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's Jesus saying everything I've just been saying. Just meditate on this. Oh, how he rewards us and loves us when we turn to him in humility. Ask for his forgiveness that he, it cost him everything to give us. And his summary, now in verse 30, the last verse, of the difference between pride and humility. Here it is right here. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. The great paradox of following Christ. All who forsake everything for the kingdom of Christ will enter the kingdom of Christ and be granted by God the full blessings of knowing him, being set free by him, eternal life, and much, much more than we could ever give up. Have you done that today? Are you ready to do that today? Are you ready to recommit your life to Christ today and experience all that he has? As he forgives, sets free, guides, steers, heals, 
reconciles all those things that he does. His Holy Spirit is active in today. And so for next step, I just have one that covers everything. That is come to Christ. And this is applicable to everyone here, wherever you are in your relationship with God. Come to Christ with genuine humility and no pride, and he'll make you alive and restore you today. Here's what the Bible proclaims. Genuine humility is, what is that? It is the sacrifice that's acceptable to God. No other sacrifice is acceptable to God. Psalm 51. The Bible proclaims God turns his face and extends his favor to the humble. Isaiah 66. God opposes the proud, but he saves the humble. You don't want to be on the opposing side of God, but he saves the humble. Job 22. The Lord requires us to walk humbly before our God. Micah 6. And as Jesus Christ himself humbled himself on, on the cross, even to, to death, even to the point of death on a cross, Philippians 2, we come to him in humility, no pride. Remember who we're following. The young ruler, he tried to maintain both. We do too. No more. Jesus called that young ruler out and he set him straight. Now that ruler, he chose to walk away from Jesus. Don't. Don't choose to walk away from Jesus. God is setting you straight today. Let's bow your head and close your eyes and just pray this simple prayer. And this is fitting for everyone here. Just pray this today. God, I am yours. All I have is yours. I need and receive right now your gracious forgiveness and your power. I pray you'll use my life for your glory. If you've never trusted Jesus, add, I confess my sins and need for your salvation, and I receive it today. And he'll make you alive spiritually today. And now we pray, Lord, that you'll show us the glorious things that that will mean for our lives. And every part of our lives as we uh, commit these things to you. And now, Lord, as we get to sing a great song, Lay Me Down, I pray that this is a worshipful song of commitment. Let's see what you'll do with it. In Jesus' name, amen.